You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Um, After a two-year hiatus where I was working at a local megachurch, I had enough people talk to me about joining the Navy as an officer to become a chaplain. I thought that was pretty cool. I was working with the military ministry at that church at the time, going down to Camp Pendleton, meeting with uh, the uh, Marines in the 3-5 division. Now, in order to become a chappie, you actually need a full Masters of Divinity. That's kind of how I got sucked in all the way and drank all the Kool-Aid, so... I started at Fuller, full steam ahead, blowing through my degree and working on getting accepted and sworn into the Navy. Now, super long story, as short as I possibly can tell it, the Navy didn't want me. (laughs) Something about me being a girl and 27 million hoops to jump through because I'm a girl, um, and because of that, I was out. Um, So I thought, why am I still getting this degree? This is dumb. I'm getting a ton of loans through this. This is get out of here. Um, But I still felt God say, stay at Fuller, uh, keep the loans, finish the degree. So as Drew hinted at, the plan now is, well, the plan, we'll see how that goes. God tends to change things when I have my own plan. Um, The plan now is to pursue a PhD in the next year or so on a topic that I actually fell in love with my first quarter at Fuller um, in a highly controversial class on Christian sexuality ethics. Um, I'd love to talk with you about it sometime if you'll catch me later. Now's really not the time for it. But while we're on the topic of Fuller, did anyone know that Pastor Chris is actually a teacher at Fuller? Okay, cool. That is common information. Sweet. Um, He teaches the homiletics course, which sounds like a really complicated and scary way of just saying preaching 101. Um, So any faux pas that I have or mistakes, you can go ahead and blame on PC. He was the one who taught me this. (laughs) So homiletics is the course required for all students who are getting their master's of divinity, so the degree I'm getting. Um, While I was going through this course, uh, PC got to listen to me bang my head on the wall when we were assigned to write a 10-minute sermon on what is the gospel. 10 minutes (laughs) on what the gospel is? Are you serious? Lord love a duck. During this, I went through the classic seminary experience of questioning absolutely everything you know about your face. You go into seminary thinking, I got this. Got my undergraduate degree at a Christian school. I know what I'm talking about. Nah, mm mm-mm. It's a common joke among Christian scholars that seminary is where your face goes to die. (laughs) We actually joke and we call it cemetery. Over the course of that quarter, I fell in love with the way that PC teaches and realized he was beyond insightful and brilliant. I went to him several times over the course of of the quarter, complaining about scripture that suddenly didn't make sense or parts of our faith that I thought were foundational. This had to be true in order for my faith to be true, that somehow were challenged or turns out I had completely misunderstood. 
PC was gracious and spent a lot of time with me, walking me through some of my questions, and just sitting with me in the unknown. It's an annoying place to sit. <laughs> One of the things that students need to do in order to graduate from Fuller Seminary is actually intern alongside someone for three quarters. This was an easy choice for me. I asked Pastor Chris if I could follow him around as his intern. And that is the longer version of what Drew just told you <laughs> and how I ended up here. So let's stop talking about me and let's turn into, back into the series and into the text. Um, so last week, Pastor Chris, if you remember, talked about what it means not to feel the Holy Spirit, what it means to sit in the wilderness, if you will, even when you desperately want to interact with the Spirit. Um, today, we're going to look at the opposite of that. So the opposite of you waiting on the Spirit, the Spirit waiting on you what ignoring the Holy Spirit looks like. Um, before we dive into the text, I'm going to tell you up ahead of time that I did a bunch of reading as a scholar. And first and foremost, I want to tell you guys there's actually not a lot of information in the scriptures about this topic at all. There really are just a few brief mentions of what it means to ignore the Holy Spirit, and none of them would be nearly as detailed at least as I want them to be. Since you're getting to know me and we've spent a lot of time talking about me already, um, I can tell you that I'm a rule follower. I have a very type A personality. I would love to see the rules, I want to know what they are, and then I will follow those rules perfectly. I'm going to do it perfectly and I'm not gonna mess up as best I can. My mother might say also, otherwise. When we get to a topic like what is ignoring the Holy Spirit and what happens when we ignore the Holy Spirit, there are no cut and dry answers and I freak out a little. So let's dive into what we do know, that being said. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Thessalonians 5 with me. I'll give you a quick second. Um, because this verse is super long that we're going to look at. It's important you have it. We're going to look at just verse 19. <laughs> just 19. Like I said, there's not a whole lot on this, folks. <laughs> Paul very simply writes in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. That's it. Five words. So PC normally comes up here. He'll read a long passage and teach about that. Now I got five words for you guys. <laughs> For fun, and to make sure that's really what it is, just verse 19, just do not quench the Spirit. Let's just move on and read verses 20 to 22. Do not treat the prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Yeah, there's not much in there. We're kind of stuck with verse 19. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this for the first time, I thought, Wait, 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 hold up. Paul, what is quenching the Holy Spirit? And we're just going to move on? You're not going to, you know, give me a little more to go off of there? One of the things I've gotten to do in seminary is take several quarters of Greek. You can either take in school what's called Greek tools, which basically just teaches you how to use in accordance, um, or you can take the real language. I decided to be an adventurous, a big mistake, and take the real language. <laughs> so, 
Fortunately, that has given me the tool to get all nerdy and go look at the original language. So walk with me while we do that. Looking at the Greek version of this text, there are actually a few various ways to translate quench into English. It's not a direct translation. It's super rough. So if we look at our various versions of the Bible, they'll all use different, majority of them will use a different word for this strange Greek word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce for you. You're welcome. We've got, do not stifle the Holy Spirit in the New Living Translation. We've got, do not extinguish the Holy Spirit in the New English Translation. Do not suppress the Holy Spirit in my personal favorite, the Common English Bible. Um, It's just my favorite because it's basically as raw translation from the Greek as you can possibly get. It makes it a little rough to read sometimes, but. Um, And unfortunately, we don't actually have any more instruction from Paul, even in the original language. Basically, we don't know very much at all if I haven't made that perfectly clear. Another one of the lessons that I have learned in seminary, however, is to do your research on the passage when you're reading it. So let's remember for a quick second that 1 Thessalonians is actually a letter. It's a letter written by an ancient guy, Paul, to an ancient church in an ancient city, Thessalonica. It's not written directly to us from God. Now, there's a reason this is still in the Bible, of course. We can still take lessons from these ancient letters. There are still so many things that the ancient churches and the ancient Christians struggle with that we also struggle with both as a corporate body and as individuals. So it's important to read. This letter is addressed to the church in Thessalonica, which, by the way, is modern-day Greece-ish. Just looking at this passage alone, one might think that the church was having issues with maybe accepting the Holy Spirit. Or maybe they were having issues listening to God. Yeah, we still can't know that, though. That's just conjecture. There's actually no mention of this in the rest of the letter to the church. And trust me, I read 1 Thessalonians over and over, hoping for some kind of reasoning as to what in the world Paul is talking about. So what the heck? Still thinking contextually, I think it's important to remember just how new this church is. So a little history lesson. Since you're talking to a seminarian, we're going to get real academic today, folks. (laughs) Jesus died and resurrected between A.D. 30 and A.D. 36. First Thessalonians, this letter, this letter was written, depending on which scholar you ask, between A.D. 48 and A.D. 52. So again, Jesus resurrected between 30 and 36, the letter between 48 and 52. That's not all that long after Jesus died. Before Jesus died, the Old Testament and in the Old Testament, the interactions with God were primarily regarding and directed towards Yahweh. The entire Old Testament is about Yahweh, praising Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh, obeying Yahweh. That's an entirely different interaction now. Then comes the book of Matthew in the New Testament and the recount of the life of Jesus. And everything violently changes. Jesus enters the scene. He's seen throughout the Gospels praying to and interacting with the Father. Then comes the Holy Spirit as well. 
whom we talked about as living in our hearts. We talk about the spirit inside us. This, about this type of interaction with God in comparison to the interaction with Yahweh or the God of the Old Testament, like I had said, is so strangely different. Think about how they would have felt moving from the way they had interacted with how we generally talk about as an angry God to this personal interaction. This new relationship with the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is far closer and more intimate with God than the burnt offerings and the oh-so-many rules about who could and could not go into the tabernacle and worship him. Like I had said, there are only about 10 years between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and this church to the this letter to the church in Thessalonica. So Paul's instructions do not stifle the Holy Spirit. In other words, let the Holy Spirit come. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Embrace the presence and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay. <laughs> I would bet that some of you heard me say the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you thought, Ooh, she's one of those charismatic Pentecostals. <laughs> I heard someone say, yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't be wrong. I grew up in the vineyard before going to and even working at a non-denominational local megachurch. But I still bleed vineyard. So yeah, I grew up around people who were speaking in tongues. It sounds a whole lot like... And giving what were called words during prayer times. Prayers for healing and even classes on how to pray for healing and what to expect when you pray for healing were not uncommon at all. It wasn't weird. That was just normal. That was expected and that was the culture I was in. That can be slightly terrifying to other people and I totally get that. In retrospect, I will be getting ahead of myself. But there were definitely moments in my charismatic Pentecostal experience where I thought, oh Lord, this is strange. We are going to be talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a few weeks, so this is a little sampler. It is a little bit of a spoiler alert. But my point in bringing this up is that the totally understandable reaction that some people may have regarding anything charismatic or Pentecostal, whatever, is Okay. And it may very well could, that very well could be what the church in Thessalonica was experiencing. We don't know, but let's go off it. There are, of course, levels to this. Ooh. There is the, ooh, I do not know how I feel about this. Mm. And there's the, oh yeah, see, you know, that's a little weird. I'm not a fan of that. And then there's the direct, oh yeah, no. That super spiritual stuff, that is not for me. Um, I've got Yahweh, I've got the Father, Jesus Christ died for my sins, I have a relationship with him, personal walk, you know, we talk, I'm all right, but thank you. Extinguishing, squelching, quenching, stifling. I've tried to keep my inner Greek nerd and the stuffy academic hushed for this sermon as best I can. I know I'm epically failing. But let's be nerdy and go back again to the Greek. Looking at this word quench. That same Greek word is used a few other times in the New Testament. 
If we look at Mark 9.44, Mark discusses the unquenchable fire of hell. Hebrews 11.34 talks about quenching the fire, the power of fire. Matthew 12.20 talks about quenching a smoldering candle. Like I said, though, this word is challenging to translate into English because there's more than just putting out a fire. It's more than just turning it off. It's more than just taking out the heat kaput. Beyond the literal sense of extinguishing the fire, there is the metaphorical. We've talked about someone's inner fire. It's another way of talking about someone's passions, right? Um, when you talk about someone's inner fire. Uh, for example, um, you want to see my inner fire? Let's talk about athletics. Or maybe my seven-week-old kitten. Gender studies, women's rights, ethics, sexuality ethics. Ooh. Boom. You say something like that, you bring up one of those topics, and I am an entirely different person. I'll light up, I'll get excited, maybe overly excited, I'll talk with my hands a lot, and I'm in it. I'm there for it. Those are the topics that I get passionate about. That's fire within me. The Holy Spirit is also a fire within us. Hebrews 12, 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. It completely takes over. When John the Baptist is baptizing in Matthew 3, 11, he declares, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. John the Baptist is linking the presence of the Holy Spirit with that of fire. The fire being extinguished in this sense to the Thessalonian church. That fire dying. Again, that fire is the Holy Spirit. And when we look at that, it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. And more than that, the Holy Spirit is actually part of this Godhead. Not too long ago, I was um, having a beer with one of my buddies, um, and we were talking about the Godhead. He and I, whenever we get together, we tend to have these really deep philosophical conversations over beer. It's great. Um, one of those nights, we were talking philosophically, and we got so wrapped up and so lost in the topic that our brains just kind of started to hurt. Do you know what I mean? Basically, we had discussed that it's so easy to imagine the Father. This is not a challenging concept. We all have a father, or at least someone who is a father figure to us. Am I right? The father, God the father, is understood as a parental being, as a parental God. Someone who can protect, someone who can intervene, someone who can, we can listen to as we cry, someone who listens to us as we cry. There we go. The father is easy to imagine. He's bigger than us. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's jealous. He wants us to love him and no other God. This is not complicated. Jesus, at the very least for me, is also easier, easy to understand as well as a friend. Someone who's on my team. Someone who gets it. I can be sitting in the car and talking out loud about all the things and praying to Jesus. He was a man just like we are. 
He had human experiences just like we do. He had a mother and a father, half-siblings, went to church, went to school, had a social life. And along with being understandable for who he is because of who we are, there are also movies about Jesus. We can literally see him come to life on the screen and interact with other people. The stories in the Bible about Jesus that we know and have heard and are familiar are right there for us to watch. Jesus is talked about a lot in church. He's meek, he's mild, he's good. He, takes, he cares for the children, he cares for the widowed and for the orphaned, for the outcast and the lonely. Jesus is friends with those who do not belong in high church and do not belong in high society. That's two pieces of the Godhead. So what about the Holy Spirit? What context do we have for the Holy Spirit? What context did the ancient church have for the Holy Spirit? See that link there? The Holy Ghost is another word we commonly use for him, and I don't know about you, but I think about scary movies. Ghost was always a trigger word for me when I would hear that in church, because as a kid, I would instantly imagine something along the lines of Casper the Friendly Ghost, or Ghostbusters, or maybe even something from Scooby-Doo. My friend and I laughed at this. Obviously, Scooby-Doo bad guys are not God. It's just children's stories. So how are we supposed to understand what the Holy Spirit is? How do we interact with him? We were frustrated at this. How can we comprehend a relationship wherein we don't have a direct example or familiarity really of anything like this sort at all? It might just be easier to focus on the Father. That's safe. That's understandable. Or Jesus, that's another safe and another understandable example. But by only talking to the Father, by only praying to Jesus, we're missing the Holy Spirit completely. We're missing a third of the puzzle. When we look at quenching or extinguishing the Holy Spirit, there are a couple ways we can do this, I think. We've got the type of squelching um, where someone directly and intentionally says, no, I understand the Spirit. I understand how it speaks to me. I understand that the Spirit is part of the triune Godhead, and I want nothing to do with it. That is belligerent, and that is willful quenching. That's easy to identify. That's easy to accomplish. You just say no. I would probably relate this to saying actually no to Christianity as a whole. Um, but the other kind of quenching is a little harder. I would call it ghosting. I'm a millennial. And this is a millennial term. Um, so I'll define it for you. Ghosting basically means ending a relationship, no matter what type of relationship it is, um, with someone suddenly and without really any warning whatsoever or any explanation. All communication cut off. It's gone. And poof, that person you once knew, that person you loved, or even just that person you had a cup of coffee with, gone. 
Ghosting is for sure a trigger word. This is not a word we use lightly by any means. Um, ask anyone my age what ghosting is, and you will likely get a very intense and a very strong reaction. Ghosting is confusing at best and deeply painful and depressing and destructive at worst. You can intentionally ghost somebody. You can say, mm, that date didn't go so well. I don't really want to go on another one. So I'm just going to not answer their calls or their text messages and disappear. Casper. But ghosting can also be an accident. You get busy. Work gets insane. Your sister is sick. Your children become devils in the household, and by the time the house is finally quiet, it's time for a quick episode of The Office and a glass of wine before bed. When we extinguish the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are effectively ghosting him, be that intentionally or unintentionally. The Holy Spirit is not just some ethereal presence that is somehow linked to God. The Holy Spirit is a person. A person that, moreover, we are in a relationship with. A person we are talking to. A person who intervenes with us on the daily and at least should have decisions or influence over the decisions that we make on the daily. We can see the personhood of the Holy Spirit all over the New Testament. Um, referencing a few quick verses, he searches all things, the scriptures say. The Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. The Holy Spirit teaches the gospel to believers. He bears witness to our own spirits. He strengthens believers. And Ephesians 4.30 talks about him being grieved by our own sinfulness. Grieved. Ghosting the Holy Spirit, whether that be intentional or completely accidental, grieves him. It displeases him. It hurts him. Like it would us, like I said, ghosting is either confusing at the very best or deeply painful at the worst. When someone we love disappears, it hurts for who knows why. When we break relationship with the Holy Spirit, we quench his power. When we quench his power, when we quench his presence in our lives, he grieves. Now, this isn't to say we actually have the power to hurt God. That's ridiculous. He's God. We cannot speak or do things in a way that will wound God. It's just as simple as that. But we can offend. We can offend the Holy Spirit. We can anger the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are very clear on that. So this hurt, this grief that the Holy Spirit experiences when we ghost him isn't actually a permanent hurt. This hurt's a little different. The Holy Spirit isn't grieving because of us, because of something we do, but rather he's grieving for us. <clears throat> my mom and my grandmother, so my second mother, are uh, with me here today. 
Both of them, along with probably every other good parent in the history of ever, have used the phrase when parenting, this hurts me more than it hurts you. We've all heard this, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's annoying. <laughs> this punishment, having to take something from you, having to give you a consequence knowing it would hurt you somehow, and I am not a parent, <laughs> hurts them more. Yes, you, we, us, are going to be upset. We might fail at something. We might get lost. We might get hurt. But we asked for it. We made the intentional decision. So we get the natural consequence. The Holy Spirit grieves when we quench and we silence him because of the natural consequences that are coming our way shortly after muting him. God is by no means a forceful God. We are not forced into a relationship with him. We can leave if we want. We can be busy. We can be forgetful. No problem. The Holy Spirit isn't going to barge into our lives and insist that we have a relationship with him. It's just not going to happen. When we quench the Holy Spirit, though, he does not leave us. He's not a ghost. He's not gone. Deuteronomy 31.6 talks about how the Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us. That won't happen. But what will happen is silence. What will happen is the Spirit will stop pursuing us. If only one party is interested in a relationship, what's the point in trying over and over and over to prove that there's love there? What's the point in trying over and over to love, to support, to protect the person who's just not interested in you? There's not. That's a foolish task. And the Holy Spirit isn't going to engage in a foolish task. So when we quench the Holy Spirit, when we silence him in her lives, when we ghost him, he's not going to insist that he stay. He's going to let us silence him. Which is sad. Paul, considering this, warns the Thessalonican church about this. As we've been talking about the last few weeks, the Holy Spirit is our loving advocate who provides wise and perfect counsel. We are loved by the Holy Spirit. He seeks our love. He seeks relationship with us. He's promised to be there for us when we need him, even if we can't hear him or feel him. Even if we are in the wilderness, even if we have no idea which way is up or no idea which way is down, the Spirit is still there. When we quench him, when we silence him, when we're off living our life, when we're not paying attention to the spirit whatsoever, he's still there. He's just waiting. He's waiting for us to remember he's there. He's waiting for us to turn around and say, oh, hi, I'm sorry. I was over there. But now I'm here. This type of relationship with the Holy Spirit is perfect. Perfect love is waiting for us from the Holy Spirit. 
comforting counsel, an advocate, uplifting courage, someone to talk to and cry with in joy and in sadness. I encourage you today, consider the way you interact with the Holy Spirit. Are you ghosting him? Yikes. Oh, that doesn't feel good. Are you ignoring him? Are you quenching your relationship with him? Is he a priority? Or is it that paper you've got due on Monday? That work thing that's clogging up all of your time? That bratty little kid who won't stop crying? Spend some time today, over the next few days, in reflection and in prayer with the Holy Spirit. He's waiting for you. He's there. He just wants you to turn around and say, hi, I'm back. He's waiting for you to respond to him.